Hello, I'm Claire Armistead. Before we hear this week's podcast, we just wanted to point you in the direction of our sponsor, Squarespace. For more information on building beautiful websites, go to squarespace.com. The Guardian. I mean, this idea of like women take a vow of silence to patriarchy, to never speak about the men that they're involved with, that's over. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. This week, we're investigating the trend in genre-bending confessional memoirs by women writers. We talked to Chris Krauss about her cult book, I Love Dick. It was a very polarizing book. I was surprised by how polarizing it was. 60 or 65% of the people who read it really hated it and condemned it, but that made other people defend it even more passionately. To me, though, I mean, really, has no one ever left a husband before? Has no one had an affair? (laughs) What's so shocking here? And Maggie Nelson tells us about the Argonauts, the story of her relationship with her fluidly gendered spouse. I feel like I've learned a lot by seeing what the tropes are that people are using. Mm. You know, Maggie's a lesbian married to a trans man. I'm like, wow, that's so interesting. Neither of us identify that way, but I didn't know, you know. So it's been very, <laughs> a very interesting book to see when and how do people jump to their own conclusions, you know. Chris Krause's novel I Love Dick met a chilly reception when it was first published in 1997, but has since become something of a cult feminist classic. It tells the story of Chris, a 39-year-old failed video artist married to cultural critic Sylvère. When the couple visit Sylvère's friend Dick, Chris conceives an unrequited passion for him and her husband colludes with her to play it out in love letters. The letters snowball into autobiographical confessions, essays on artists and rants against the position of women in the art world. Sean Kane talked to Chris and began by asking her where she would place I Love Dick on the spectrum between fiction and memoir. In the first page of the book, December 3rd, 1994, it is, as I say later on in the book, it's a chronicle. And, you know, when I decided that I was going to write a book, which wasn't until much later, that became my case study. I was performing a case study on my own midlife crush. And what was all that like, deciding that these feelings, these emotions that you were having could be transformed into an art project? It was exhilarating. It was anguishing. It was all of those things at once. At the time I was writing I Love Dick, I kept a notebook like on the on the passenger seat of my car all the time because, I, you know, things kept coming up and I was I mean, to the point of almost graphomania. I waited so long to start writing and suddenly it seemed there were so many things to say. But I didn't think until much later that I was writing a book. I mean, it seemed very intimidating and presumptuous, the idea of writing a book. And it was only months later when it was clear that nothing was going to eventuate in real life and there were pages and pages of writing that I realized, oh, maybe I'm writing a book. December 3rd, 1994. Chris Krause, a 39-year-old experimental filmmaker and Sylvia Lochinger, a 56-year-old college professor from New York, have dinner with Dick Blank, a friendly acquaintance of Sylvia's at a sushi bar in Pasadena. Dick is an English cultural critic who's recently relocated from Melbourne to Los Angeles. Chris and Silvera spent Silvera's sabbatical at a cabin in Crestline, a small town in the San Bernardino Mountains some 90 minutes from L.A. Since Silvera begins teaching again in January, they will soon be returning to New York. 
Over dinner, the two men discussed recent trends in postmodern critical theory, and Chris, who's no intellectual, notices Dick making continual eye contact with her. Dick's attention makes her feel powerful, and when the check comes, she takes out her Donner's Club card. Please, she says, let me pay. The radio predicts snow on the San Bernardino Highway. Dick generously invites them both to spend the night at his home in the Antelope Valley, some 30 miles away. Chris wants to separate herself from her coupleness, so she sells Silvera on the thrill of riding in Dick's magnificent vintage Thunderbird convertible. Silvera, who doesn't know a T-bird from a hummingbird and doesn't care, agrees, bemused, done. Dick gives her copious concern directions. Don't worry, she interrupts, flashing hair and smiles. I'll tell you. And she does. Slightly buzzed and keeping the accelerator of her pickup truck steady, she's reminded of a performance she did called Car Chase at the St. Mark's Poetry Project in New York when she was 23. She and her friend Liza Martin had tailed the steelily good-looking driver of a Porsche all the way through Connecticut on Highway 95. Finally, he pulled over at a rest stop, but when Liza and Chris got out, he drove off. The performance ended with Liza accidentally but really stabbing Chris's hand on stage with a kitchen knife. Blood flowed, and everyone found Liza dazzlingly sexy and dangerous and beautiful. Liza, belly popping out of a fuzzy midriff top, fishnet legs tearing up against her green vinyl miniskirt as she rocked back to show her crotch, looked like the cheapest kind of whore. A star is born. No one at the show that night had found Chris's pale, anemic looks and piercing gaze remotely endearing. Could anyone? It was a question that had temporarily been shelved. But now it was a whole new world. The request line on 92.3 The Beat was thumping post-riot Los Angeles, a city strung on fiber-optic nerves. Dick's Thunderbird was always somewhere in her line of sight, the two vehicles strung invisibly together across the concrete riverbed of highway like John Dunn's eyeballs. And this time, Chris was alone. There's a dinner party scene where Chris presents, I think, 180 pages of letter yeah, writing. Yeah, horrified, horrified. Is that, yeah, is that how he reacted? <laughs> yes, that all happened. The coffee shop, it all happened. <laughs> in the book, he sort of accepts it in quite a, uh, I thought, quite a, a nice, affable way. He says, I promise you I will read this. Yes, exactly, exactly. I guess without wanting to, he encouraged it as fully as possible by never saying, no, I hate this, please stop. If he did that, I would have stopped. And by neither responding, you know, so he turned himself into this blank screen onto which it's, it's possible to project and write anything. So, I mean, that's the ideal condition for writing is to have the sort of ideal listener who doesn't really say much, but you believe they're understanding everything. Mm. And, and he gave me that. <laughs> yeah, it, throughout the book, it's, it, it becomes apparent as uh, Chris's letters develop and suddenly become much wider in scope. She starts talking about art and, and gender and Guatemalan civil war. And it feels, as a reader, that perhaps the letter writing in itself has become more important than Dick. It's giving her an avenue to voice her thoughts and her intellect that she didn't have before. Absolutely. I mean, once I started writing beyond the first flush of the infatuation and trying to be clever about the infatuation, once I got into the vein of letter writing, uh, the letter writing soon turned into essay writing. By the second part of the book, the letters really are essays and they're conceived as essays. And I realized in writing the first letters, 
there was so much I needed to talk about. I'd been in the art world since I was 21 years old, and as a sometime participant, not very active and certainly not very recognized, but I'd seen a lot about how things worked. And I was very conscious of how things worked. And these are usually private conversations, you know, how things really work behind the scenes. And one thing that I felt really strongly about in the book was that everything that goes on under the table is time to put it on the table and really look at how it works. So one of the things that I, I was very desperately concerned with was how the career system works in the art world and who succeeds, who fails, you know, who are the anointed, who are the chosen, and how exactly does that happen and can we talk about that? Mm. So that's part of what I write about in the book and then that leads to talking about the careers of second wave feminists that I began to study and I found that so shocking and disheartening the way these women by the middle of their lives had been so kind of written out and marginalized and ridiculed you know, to the point that they became really cranky and hard to talk to. Yeah, oh, there's a point in the book where Chris refers to herself, while she's still with Sylvia, she refers to herself as an academic groupie, which I thought was such a, a hurtful label, but it's obviously something that she's been made to feel like, even though she's his wife. Yeah. And, and a creator in her own right. I felt like that was something that came up often in the book, that there was an attitude that women couldn't create universal art. They could only create personal art. And so they were so often written off because they were talking about emotion or something that men didn't have to talk about. They could talk about universal applying stories. I know that's a very peculiar thing, right? And I don't think it's completely finished with, you know? This tendency to describe female writing female artists, visual artists, I mean, always described as, always prefaced by gender in a way that male work is never prefaced by gender. I mean, the same thing happens with descriptors about race, etc. And no matter how much it's been challenged in the last decade, it still persists. Hmm. So, I mean, it's not over until it's over. I don't think it's over. <laughs> I mean, this book came out in 1997. Um, at the time when it came out, how was it received? Um, it was a very polarizing book. I was surprised by how polarizing it was. I mean, 60 or 65 percent of the people who read it really hated it and condemned really? it, but that made other people defend it even more passionately. To me, though, I mean, I've been in New York since the late 1970s, and I'd seen some pretty, truly shocking. I mean, if you see somebody who does a performance where he bites the head off of rats and spits them out, or somebody who's spurting their HIV blood all over the room, I mean, really, has no one ever left a husband before? Has no one had an affair? <laughs> What's so shocking here? Wow. <laughs> what what did people say when when they said they didn't like it? What were the reasons that they gave? Oh, mostly that it was an invasion of Dick Blank's privacy. Yeah. You know, and, and that that was such an intrusion, that was such a transgression. But really, there's not a single thing. In the, I mean, my scruple in writing the book was I wouldn't say anything about this person that either wasn't my own reflection or that he hadn't published himself that was part of a public record. That is, if there was anything personal that he'd said to me in conversation, that was not going to be in the book. Mm. So you published I Love Dick in 1997, and then you received a cease and desist uh, letter from the actual Dick 
blank. Can you explain what happened? Well, my first impulse was to call him up and say, you know, I'm really sorry. Look, this is never meant as a thing against you. Why don't you write the introduction to the book and we'll publish it together and everybody will think it's a joke we cooked up together. And he was appalled by that suggestion, really? Wouldn't would not entertain it. So at that point, okay, so we're going to publish the book. I mean, really, there's nothing libelous in the book. He still wasn't identified by his surname. It was only when an ex-student of Silvera's wrote a piece for New York Magazine about the cease and desist thing. He, I mean, he had an inkling who Dick was, and he called the person up. And he outed himself, you know, like in order to condemn the book and say that it was despicable and beneath contempt, he identified himself and was quoted by his surname. And so that's how his surname entered the public record of the book. It was never my intent. Mm. And have you had much uh, correspondence or relationship with him after that point? No, not at all. Mm. Not at all. And I mean, I'm very, very sorry for any kind of personal damage that he felt was done to him, but it was never intentional, and I did everything to make it otherwise I could. Mm. Now, your book has uh, recently been republished last year, and it's had quite a avid reception. People really love this book, and it's sort of been held up as a icon of feminist literature. Why do you think your book has had such a resurgence now, sort of 18 years after it was first published? Oh, I think people are much more prepared to be entertained by it, you know, and people are much more comfortable with um, these questions of privacy. Obviously, blogging and internet and social media culture has a lot to do with that. But the boundaries of privacy now are a lot more porous. We have different expectations of it. So people can just kind of come along for the ride and enjoy the joke. And it doesn't seem so evil. (laughs) Yes. I mean, there is a moment in the book where uh, Chris recalls reading an all-white male blurb on the back of a book and says uh, to Dick, what happens between women now is the most interesting thing in the world because it's the least described. Yeah. Do you think that's something that's... Is that why the book is being popular now? Because we're sort of more... We've realised that there is a gap for this kind of book and we all now want to read it. Well, I mean, it's very exciting the way that gap has been filled in the last decade. And so much new contemporary original writing by women has been circulating widely all over the culture. It's really, really important. I mean, to the point where it really has become a universal, even if it's not declared as such. Mm. I mean, this writing is so strong and it's so well-read and understood that it really has become a template for experience. Do you think that women now, uh, particularly now that we're in firmly in the third wave, of feminism have rejected a need for discretion. Is that why your relatively sort of cheeky book is popular again? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this idea of that women take a vow of silence to patriarchy to never speak about the men that they're involved with, that's over. Women completely claim the right to speak about their own experience. Mm. You know, in the book, there's the story of what happened to the artist Hannah Wilka. And because Hannah Wilka's artwork, she lived with the artist Klaus Oldenburg, the more famous and successful artist, for seven years. And naturally, as people's work did during that kind of process art time of the 70s, a lot of her daily life seeped into her work. When she was finally offered a major museum retrospective, some of her work included Polaroid's images of her home life with Oldenburg. 
And he put a cease and desist letter against the museum to not show the work, and he completely ruined her opportunity for that retrospective mm. by refusing to have any images of himself. Uh, that was outrageous. Mm. That was outrageous. That was, I mean, so against the ethos of that kind of work that was like gender free, that like there was this very kind of porous line between art and life, and all kinds of life stuff would bleed into art, was all kind of a material for art of all kinds. It was so offensive. And yeah, I, I think women have kind of totally kicked back against that restriction now. In the book, uh, Chris is constantly aware of the ways in which she is patronised and belittled and ignored and pathologised uh, by people around her. And I read this book as quite a angry, frustrated book, a funny book, but an angry book. Um, but you've written a wonderful piece that is now up on the Guardian website, and uh, you've said... Almost invariably, reviewers praise the book for its embrace of the feminine abjection, although I see it more as comedy. Do you view it as a comedy? Yes. <laughs> Why is that? Absolutely. I mean, as soon as I went back and decided to use it as a case study, and I began to narrate the characters and talk about the people, Chris and Sylvia, in the third person, it's a comedy. Of course, they're clowns. I mean, there's something so absurd about a married couple writing to a third party. And the only way to treat that is as a kind of like, like a postmodern, you know, 18th century French comedy of like lovers behind closet doors. It's, you know, it's totally ridiculous and absurd and goofy. Mm -hmm. And so to me, the book was like so much more fun than it was angst. I mean, there was angst in it, of course. All comedy is fueled by angst. But ultimately, it was kind of a giddy ride. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you have many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design, so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands, and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com forward slash guardian. The Argonauts combines memoir with academic theory to tell the story of Maggie Nelson's love for Harry Dodge, a fluidly gendered West Coast sculpture, writer and video artist, and their experiences of making a family together. Maggie spoke to Sean and began by reading a passage from the book. How to explain. Trans may work well enough as shorthand, but the quickly developing mainstream narrative it evokes, quote-unquote, born in the wrong body, necessitating an orthopedic pilgrimage between two fixed destinations is useless for some, but partially or even profoundly useful for others. That for some, transitioning may mean leaving one gender entirely behind, while for others, like Harry, who is happy to identify as a butch on tea, it doesn't. I'm not on my way anywhere, Harry sometimes tells inquirers. How to explain in a culture frantic for resolution that sometimes the shit stays messy. Beatrice Preciado writes, I do not want the female gender that has been assigned to me at birth. Neither do I want the male gender that transsexual medicine can furnish and that the state will award me if I behave in the right way. I don't want any of it. How to explain that for some, or for some at some times, this irresolution is okay, desirable even, e.g. gender hackers. 
whereas for others, or for others at some times, it stays a source of conflict or of grief. How does one get across the fact that the best way to find out how people feel about their gender or their sexuality, or anything else, really, is to listen to what they tell you and try and treat them accordingly without shellacking over their version of reality with yours? That's just such a great <laughs> summation of oh, nice. this sort of fascination and also frustration I think a lot of people feel when we start talking about gender or transgender yeah. particularly at the moment because it's such yeah. a public conversation yeah. that's going on at the moment yeah. and I felt that really summed up that a lot of it stems from our need for categorization to feel yeah. like Harry is somehow unfinished because it doesn't conform to either female or male. Yeah I mean you know, it's been an interesting book uh often I can tell within the first few lines of a review whether or not the person is able to live in that space or not, you know? Mm. So I've read a lot of reviews that are very, I mean, and, and the one I've noticed most is like, Maggie Nelson undergoes arduous IVF treatments while her partner transitions from female to male. I'm like, it's always very interesting to me. I've never had an IVF treatment. There's nothing wrong with IVF, I've just never had it. But the whole phrase, arduous IVF treatment, transitioning from you know female to male, these are like, I feel like I've learned a lot by seeing what the tropes are that people are using mm. You know, Maggie's a lesbian married to a trans man. I'm like, wow, that's so interesting. Neither of us identify that way, but I didn't know, you know. So it's been very, <laughs> a very interesting book to see whether or not. I mean, I know to a certain degree a, re a, a reader always has to make his or her own interpretations, but it has also been interesting to me to, to see in an invitation to a place to use precisely the terms that are on offer Mm. Um, when and how do people jump to their own conclusions, you know? Yeah, you did an, an interview with The Guardian uh, late last year uh -huh. uh, in America, and uh, you mentioned that you'd been receiving letters from people going, like, oh. dear Maggie, there are only two genders. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're not phrased that nicely, but yes, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> well, what has that been like, sort of dealing with that sort of public reaction to your book? Oh, well, those are just reactionary, you know, folks. I think um, it's probably why I'm not a great, um, as I say in the book, like spokesperson for anything, as I, I don't, I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> so, so pretentious, just kill me now, but like, <laughs> I'm a literary writer, you know, but like I'm interested in writing literature, not in op-ed pieces, and so to me the, the task, it's not just about gender, it's about, um, as I say, that's why I say, or anything else really, like the task of conjuring third spaces or places to live without this incessant need to categorize, um, I mean, which is why the book starts off with the discussion about language and to what extent, you know, language itself is a adamic tool of naming and categorization or to what extent it's about, as Wittgenstein has a kind of a use value of communication between us. And I mean, those questions are the questions that interest me. And um, I think that what a book like this can do is make a lived space where all those questions can be held side by side. But I'm not somebody who's going to get down into the trenches with talking to people who you know want to fight the good fight for binary gender that's mm. just not my not my bag yeah <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned the importance of language because language is so crucial in this and um, particularly for sort of depicting the small moments in your uh your life that the small pockets that you occasionally show in between sort of your thoughts and uh the citations of poetry and uh, philosophy and things that uh, sort of what must have just been like a, a normal day for you is elevated into something that can be quite beautiful or quite uh, 
quite tense or quite horrifying in times. So your language when you're talking about uh, the process of feeling the baby inside you or the process of giving birth or particularly the moment when Harry has just had top surgery and you are pregnant and you're recovering in that hotel room mm-hmm. together. And there was a line that you had, uh, our bodies grew stranger to ourselves, to each other. It's quite a an unsettling idea, mm-hmm. that, but it's sort of conveyed in quite a a quiet mm-hmm. a quiet way mm-hmm. in that period of time like did you mm-hmm. feel the fear that sort of i felt came off the page a little of that you might both emerge from this experience mm-hmm. something different and something changed yeah but i think you know the the kind of denouement of the passage that you just were referring to after discussing bearing witness to these changes it says in other words we were aging you know and i and the reason why that passage ends that way is that i don't think um if you're partner is going through chemotherapy or if your partner is you know undergoing parkinson's or if you are undergoing a midlife crisis and you're have just lost you know 40 pounds and are a gym bunny now or whatever it is like i mean i think that living with anybody is um a pregnancy and hormonal or surgical alterations they're just of the you know two of many many wide varieties of things that people can witness so i don't think it's particularly um unusual mm. it's just you know what that moment was and there'll be other ones that we'll have you know mm. but yeah i think that um the experience of embodiment and whether it's something difficult like illness or something that's uh you know hopefully less tragic like pregnancy i mean i think that they you know that they can be you know, we want to be drawn closer to each other, but we have these individual bodies that when they're having very intense experiences, um, you know, we're also very alone with ourselves in an existential fashion, which is, you know, there's this line in the labor part of this book where I say, you know, everything around me is normal, except I'm in the pain cavern. And like that, I think it's important to remember for the fabric of sociality that when we walk around every day, everybody that we meet, we are talking to each other and we have no idea what bodily or mental burdens we're bearing, mm. you know, but that everybody's bearing yeah. um, their own and more or less the visible to each other, you know. And in terms of what's being published, it feels like at the moment, in terms of what is being published, we've seen a rise. Um, I mean, your book is uh, introduced as genre bending mm. memoir. And uh, it does feel like that and what is being grouped together as uh, confessional literature. At the moment, it's, it's seen quite a, 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 a peak in popularity. Mm. Uh, I was thinking sort of Lindy West's uh, Shrill or mm-hmm. like Chris Krause's I Love Dick, which mm-hmm. has had a, mm-hmm. a second life now. Mm-hmm. Um, do you object to the term confessional literature at all? Because I was speaking to Chris Krause and she really doesn't like that term. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because when I was 19, I wrote, my undergraduate thesis on the notion of confessional literature. So it's a term that I um, have written and thought about a lot. And then my then my next academic foray um, was writing about the, what's called the New York School. Um, and Frank O'Hara, a poet associated with that, had a kind of tongue-in-cheek version where he called it personism. Um, I wrote about personism, which he said he wanted to call personalism, but then he learned that was already a movement, like a some kind of self-help <laughs> thing, so he called it personism. But, um, I mean, I think I've been a, a student and practitioner of different forms of experiments with um, autobiographical writing for a long time. But, you know, I think Chris Kraus and other people, I'm going to guess because I know Chris, but... Um, 
I think that whatever the trends may be that come and go, I think that the reason why I don't mind if someone says that this is like genre bending or something, but I think that we see ourselves as part of a, a very long history, whether it's again like Roland Barthes or Montaigne or The Pillow Book, or I mean, there's so many, there's so much experimental-ish life writing, whether it's um, now Scarred Now or whatever, you know, I mean, I wrote about, my thesis was on Sylvia Plath, there's, you know, Audre Lorde, Sherry Moraga, I mean, there's just so many people um, that have written, Hervé Goubert is one of my very favorite writers, um, there are just so many people, so to me it feels like part of a lineage and I wouldn't call that lineage confessional mm. per se, because I mean this is not to get too back to my 19-year-old self. But you know, and actually Chris Krauss has been very good on this point. But that you know, the notion of confession obviously presumes a certain kind of relationship of the of the private. And if you are not somebody who is accepting a certain kind of partition to begin with, you know, whether it's in the confessional or whether it's in the shrink's office or, or, or if you're not conceiving of your relationship to the reader as one that is a metaphor for either of those spaces, like a therapeutic space or a um, theological space or something, you're, the word just doesn't really have a lot of uh, traction because, as Chris has said, I think very smartly, you presume um, a flow between the cult, what you can learn about the culture by writing about the self and what you can learn about the self by writing about the culture. Like you presume that flow. You don't presume um, that, you know, you have your tiny little self over here with its secrets. It's just not the presumption at hand, you know. And that's it for this week. Thanks to Maggie Nelson and Chris Krauss. I Love Dick is published by Serpent's Tale and The Argonauts is published by Melville House. Next week, we're going uphill and downdale with Simon Ingram as our mountain guide, and we'll be musing on the beauty of the British landscape with Fiona Reynolds. You can find more literary discussion at the Guardian website, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or via your favourite podcast app. Just search for Guardian Books Podcast. Until then, from me, Claire Armitstead, and this week's producer, Simon Barnard, see you next week. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com audio.